0: You know, when I was four or five, and I don't remember particularly, I don't have much memory that I can think of in four or five, but when I was four or five, I remember my parents letting me feed our dogs food. Uh, I don't think it was an everyday scenario because I think it probably would be unwise to put your four-year-old in charge of your pet's lives. Not a good wisdom there, but I do remember the fact that they let me put the food in the bowl. And it was that congealed, food in a can kind of like alpo but we didn't buy alpo that was too expensive for us it was we were fago people if that gives you we fago So just another kind of but what i loved about putting that food in the bowl was the <laughs> sound that you get when you have to shake the can i'm sure some of you know exactly refried beans you fight over the fact of that sound there's something about it and that's why i love that <laughs> sound. And and so my parents would let me put the food in the bowl. And I think that probably was my first responsibility as a human, was to put that food in the bowl. And, And I loved it. And in that vacuum of youth, that responsibility was easy and it was fun. But what I've learned as I've grown is that my views on responsibility, my feelings towards responsibility, my understanding of responsibility has changed. There are things that I do today that I absolutely love to do. But like you, there are things that I do that are more like work to be done. And so I've seen in my life, in seasons, in my maturation, my understanding, my feelings, and my, uh, uh, my beliefs about responsibility has changed. Age and experience, hardship and other people create avenues for us in our life to build better deeper understanding build better deeper truth build better deeper context and it's inside a process like that that our views often change our perspective change our beliefs change as we change but then there are some things that we hold true that never ever really adapt never really ever change and that certainly is good if that truth is god centric gospel focused truth but there are things that we believe in life that are shaped by bad experiences, by poor ideals, poor uh, misinformed caregivers or parents. And even more than that, there, there are ideas and definitions that have been defined, taught, and conveyed in masses amongst our culture that are counterintuitive to God's design for flourishing and his very own heart. What if the definitions that we've built? And some of the aspects and some of the concepts in our life were formulated out of practicality and brokenness, and not out of God's knowledge and wisdom. I am always one that likes to challenge perspective. We have built many of series focused on perspective, because it matters. And today, we want to begin a journey over the next couple of months of of re-examining some big ideas and concepts that we use in our everyday life, things that are paradoxical in practice in today to how Jesus taught and lived them. But for some reason or another, we have have been held captive by a definition that was defined by somebody else rather than God. And so we want to journey through ideas like power, loving enemies, forgiveness, identity, These big concepts that we all have these intuitive thoughts about that we would re-examine through the words and the life of Jesus and to see how he defined, lived, and practiced them. And I think that we might come to the conclusion that the kingdom of God is maybe a little different than what we imagined. And this all began, this whole process and this whole series began uh, in reading the book of Revelation not an easy read, but in Revelation 5, there, there is this imagery, this paradoxical imagery that was hard for me to grasp. And we'll read it together. This is in Revelation 5. It's verses 1 through 10. This is a vision of the end of the age when the final judgment of the world will begin. And it says, then I saw, this is John the apostle writing this. He says, then I saw which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. In this image from the same author, of the letters of John that we just walked through, he compels this vision of the final judgment, a vision that these scrolls contain the future, the will of God. These scrolls essentially hold world history in advance, what will happen, God's plan, but nobody in that room or on the earth or in the heavens proves worthy, capable to open the scrolls for them to be worked out. And in knowing this, John is so disturbed that he begins to cry. And this elder in this vision leans over to him and says, don't cry. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah from the root of David has conquered and he will open the throne, the the seals. This is Jesus that he's talking about. And when that image is compelled, that lion compelled, what we see next is so paradoxical because amongst this vision, we see a slain lamb stepping forth onto the throne, taking the scroll. And the indication that we get from Scripture is that, is that this lamb is the Lion of Judah. This is Jesus. That the conquering that makes the Lion of Judah worthy to reveal the decrees and the commands of God is the conquering that was achieved as the slain lamb. Which is exactly what we see In verse 9, when it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. Now the context is important. This is in the vision of the final judgment on earth in the book of Revelation. And it's best understood in that context. We're not going to teach about the end of times. This is not about eschatology. Unfortunately, I'm not going to get into the seven eyes and the seven horns and the seven spirits maybe good stuff down the line. But what we are concerned with today is the imagery of a lamb that is a lion and a lion that is a lamb. It's a paradoxical statement. One conveys this imagery of power and kingship while the other conveys an image of weakness and vulnerability. When people want symbols of power, they conjure up fierce beasts and birds of prey that represent nations and sports teams. But here we see the representative of the kingdom of heaven is a lamb, representing gentleness and humility and sacrificial love. And so what this means to me is that we should be very careful about what we intuitively believe when we read Scripture. Because if you hear the term lion, power is conveyed to you in a different term and when you hear the word lamb. There are things that we init- like intuitively believe about Jesus that aren't of his wisdom. And I'm convinced it's just not here. That there are other things that we intuitively believe about Jesus, meaning things that we naturally apply to Jesus and Christianity that aren't true, they're not good and they're not right. Things that we bring into our relationship with God that are natural to us, but they are not natural to Jesus. Wisdom that revolves around our thinking and not Jesus' teachings and life. David Platt, in a book that he wrote called Radical, writes about this intuitive wisdom that we have and its dangers. He, he says this, we are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to, to ourselves When the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. Scripture writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Today, we want to compel that this idea that Jesus thinks differently than you and I think. He walked differently than you and I walked. He believed different things than you and I believed. He practiced different things than you and I practiced. And maybe, just maybe, it's time for us to open up our minds to his wisdom. And so I want to show you just briefly today three different places. There are multiple different places that we could go to. But three different pieces of Scripture about Jesus in his life that defy our own understanding and our own natural intuition, that maybe, just maybe, we might reevaluate what we hold to be true about concepts in life that have been radically redefined by a lion lamb. And so we're excited. I'm excited about this series. You know, every week is always a great week to invite somebody to church, but I think that we are going to walk through some concepts and ideas that can be helpful for lots of people. And so maybe this is a time for you to think of a friend to bring to church. My prayer is that it could be helpful for all of us in our journeys ahead. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 4. We'll have it on the screen. This is the first of three stories that we want to walk through today, stories that will, we will go into greater depth and context in the weeks to come. But for today, they'll get us thinking. And so it's in today's like connected world, We are moving rapidly towards this idea of footprint, of of bigger following, of uh, a brand, developing brands about ourselves. We have embraced this idea that fulfillment and happiness can be found in greater doses by the number of people who like us, who follow us, who see us. And we see that there is no end to people's desire to be known, to be celebrated, to gain attention. We have even heard stories in this past year of people who, in their desire to be known, take great risk to take selfies. And we, in those stories, read that they died in pursuit of these elusive selfies. Why? Why would for a picture to be celebrated, to be known, to be special? We now have terms that we've never heard of before, like click farms. Have you guys ever heard of a click farm? This is a click farm. You can literally pay people, mostly in third world countries, to look at your social media content, like it, love it, favorite it, follow you, to build your popularity and increase your influence. It's crazy! But this isn't a new issue. It's just a new manifestation of an issue that is deep inside of all of us. We may not show it in its extreme forms that we just talked about, but we've all made decisions in moments where we've been given opportunity to be more popular, to be perceived better, to be celebrated, that may compromise our ethics and our values and our morals. Decisions that were made in the moment that brought us momentary happiness, but not long-term satisfaction. But what we notice in Jesus is that he never operates like that, ever. I wanna read you a story uh, from Jesus' life, and I want you to put yourself in his shoes. Uh, I want you to ask yourself, what would you do if you were him? This story is right before Jesus begins his ministry, and it's in a season of temptation where the devil is testing him in the wilderness, and we find it in Matthew 4, starting in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, this is in the center of the city, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so here's his choice. Throw yourself off of this temple in the holy city, massive amounts of people gathered around here, and because you're God, it's obvious that you will be rescued. And so what's the effect of Jesus throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple and being rescued by the hands of God in front of this mass of people? Celebration, applause, spe- spectacular following and worship, Jesus would build a crowd. But Jesus says, no, I'm not going to put my God to the test. Seemingly an opportunity here for Jesus to display his power and his might to build a crowd, but he says, no, what would you have done in that choice? Better yet, don't put yourself on a pinnacle of a temple. That's a hard decision to make. What would you do in a choice to be liked, to do something to be loved, to do this and have influence and be celebrated? Would you compromise God to have it, to find it? How natural it is for us, if given the opportunity to be praised, to be celebrated, to be liked, to be popular, to be loved, to do things that are outside of God's will and wisdom. Jesus is always above the influence. He is never concerned about the applause of men. Always concerned about the will of his Father. And we see this even more boldly in the beginning of Jesus's ministry. In John two, we see Jesus interacting with a with crowd. He has performed some signs and wonders at the Passover feast. And he, in the, in the scripture it says that there are many that come to believe in him. And we say, yes! But wait. Listen to how Jesus responds to this crowd. In John 2, in verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, and what Jesus saw in this crowd was a thin, superficial belief. It wasn't based on anything other than the admiration of the spectacular. And Jesus did not commit himself. He did not embrace that crowd. Jesus was never about creating fans, always followers. And so the question is, is do we value that as well? Or would we rather be celebrated? Have our 15 minutes of fame to be known rather than have deeply abiding relationships with one another? Listen, even in in our attempts that others would know the name of Christ, we lean into the spectacular. We, We try to create hype and energy and emotion. In the world of church, we try to do things that create crowds. Only to find the same thing to be true, the crowds are drawn by the spectacular and it creates the spectacular and superficial in us. Jesus, in his wisdom, shows us something different, that we should always pursue the authentic, not the superficial, not the crowd, depth always over the surface. The second story that I wanna walk in today is, is the triumphal entry. A triumphal entry, as it's in Mark 11. Jesus arrives in the holy city, in Jerusalem, just days before his arrest, betrayal, and execution. And something happens, that's spectacular. Let's read this together in Mark 11, verse starting in verse nine. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David!" Hosanna in the highest and he entered the Jerusalem and he went into the temple and we had looked around at everything as it was already late he went out to Bethany with the 12 Jesus rides into the holy city a hero a heralded leader with massive popularity, massive following, and they are celebrating the anticipation of a conquering king sitting on the throne to restore their nation back to power. This king coming in to wipe out all of God's enemies. They're overjoyed to think, yes, he's arrived, our king. We're going to be great again like we were under King David. The new king has arrived. And what do we see in Jesus? He goes into the temple, he sits on the throne, he takes his scepter and he rules mightily, restores power with his mighty hand. Wait, no, he looks around and he leaves. He looks around and he leaves. What an awful moment for the expectation of these people. It's like a, a toddler who spends hours drawing an elephant in the jungle. And coloring it and takes it proudly to his parents and presents it only to hear nice flowers. This is a a moment where their expectations would have been tragically not met. This would have been the accumulation of everything that their ancestors had told them in the past of a conquering king who was going to restore the power of Israel. And in this moment, their supposed king said, You know what? Pass my bedtime. He left, and history notes that from this moment, Jesus loses the people. Consider what was his for the taking. Consider what Jesus had for the taking. Power, immense power, prestige, position, wealth, everything that is good on this earth. He could have had it, but he declined it all. He walked away. What would you do intuitively if you were given the right to power, prestige, position, wealth, popularity? And it's everyone's expectations that you would take it. People think that you're right for it. What would you do? You better believe that we would take it. Jesus didn't. And that is intrinsically radical to what the world teaches us. Jesus was blinded to the trinkets of the world and focused on the mission of his Father. Lastly, let's turn to John 10. There's a powerful collective of verses that foretell the death of Jesus. And it communicates that Jesus would not be surprised by his death sentence. He already knew about it. More than that, he orchestrated it himself and he walked into it by his own authority and so this is in john 10 14 and 15 we'll go to verse 18 as well he says i'm the good shepherd famous verse i know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep no one takes it from me but i lay it down on my own accord I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus tells us that nobody in this world has the authority or the power to take his life. His death, his torture will be a willful act out of his own authority, out of his own power. Jesus agreeably puts himself in pain, in torture, in death and so thorough and complete a sacrifice is the only hope for humanity. Nothing less than the torture and the death of God's own son could appease the demand of justice in our sin. Sin that demeans God's glory and holiness and rejects his wisdom and love. And in his death, Jesus in a moment could have said, not today, I'll take it back up. But we never see Jesus working for his own best self-interest. That's not who our God is. In the life of Jesus, we come face to face with a God who is not, for a moment, self-preserving, but one that is always radically, selfishly sacrificial. God never was swayed by the moment, He was always focused on the mission, the mission that would reap for God a greater glory in the future than it would in the moment. And it is easier and more natural for us to lean into that a different wisdom than this. And listen, this may be the greatest fight of our lives in this culture, the greatest battle that we have to fight, a fight against pursuing our own comfort, our own wisdom, our own needs, our own self first. Jesus teaches us that it is sacrifice that will build the kingdom of God on earth. Not power, not self, not effort, not possession, not success, sacrifice. And it is woven into every section of of scripture that we can find. If we just throw up just a few verses here out of our New Testament, we see this lived out in the words of Jesus' followers and himself. And Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. First Corinthians, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And John, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's a radically self-sacrificing Versus, but given the choice between myself and others, what is my default setting? I bend towards me. We bend towards self. And in this culture, sacrifice is given only out of abundance. Giving only comes when we have leftover. If I have something left, I'll give it. If it doesn't affect me, I'll show compassion. Sacrifice isn't even something that should cost us comfort. I will sacrifice as long as as it's not to the detriment of my own comfort. Jesus never, ever attached those strings to sacrifice. Never, ever attached those strings to cost. In fact, he implies that following Jesus would be above all else more than we would be willing to give up. More than we could endure. Sacrifice that will someday be met with a rich reward. It's not a fatalistic sacrifice that I stink, the world stinks, I'm just gonna. But it's a sacrifice that's selflessly given for greater joy and greater hope. And so as we consider these three examples, let's think about our lives. Do we live by this wisdom, by these examples? Or is it far too often the case that we presume or pursue our own wisdom rather than God's? A wisdom that is wise in our own minds, but foolish by God's determination. And so maybe it's time for us to be foolish in the eyes of the world, to be wise in the eyes of the kingdom. You know, earlier this summer, I had plans during this stretch of time to do a series about apologetics. Apologetics meaning right truth about difficult things. Uh, I wanted to teach us right things that we might be able to defend and, and fight for God's truth in this ever-changing world. But as I prayed over those things and discerned the voice of God, my heart became increasingly concerned about where that truth may land. You know, it's good to have right things and right thoughts about truth conviction about the truth, to hold to those things. But if that truth finds its home in a heart that pursues its own wisdom, that finds fame more important than virtue, that pursues promotion, position, power in the world over humility, grace, and mission, and sees sacrifice as a luxury and not a lifestyle, my fear is that truth would become a a tool for condemnation and not one for redemption. And so let us journey together over the course of the next few weeks to seek out God's wisdom with renewed ears, open hearts, that maybe old dogs can be taught new tricks, that God's Spirit would compel us towards cultivating new and different truths by his own wisdom. I'll close with a quote from an author named John Boykin in his book called The Gospel Coincidence. He writes this, He says, the things that Jesus demand are entirely foolhardy until you begin to share his view on things. Come to see money not as a passport to luxury, but as a dangerous encumbrance, and you will not find it so ridiculous to give to whoever wants to borrow. Realize that your purpose in life is to give his love away, and you will find it easier to refrain from striking back at people who can hurt you. He's just he's different than we think he is. And he's better than we could hope. And we have to lean out of our own natural intuition to see his greater glory. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, we confess that we default to our own wisdom. We bring things into this relationship with you that aren't of you. We've had bad experiences, tragic things in our life, poor ideas, misinformed people, convey to us truths about aspects that aren't the same that you convey. And so Lord, help us amongst this shaky culture to question all that we know and have through your lens, your life, and your teaching. Let truth find a soil that wants you above everything else. And so convict us where we are short in that. Let your spirit give us wisdom where we need it. But let us always lean and trust in you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your powerful name. Jesus, amen.